talk to me. WSRadio.com Welcome to Computer and Technology Radio with your hosts, Mark Cohen and Marsha Collier. And welcome, as always. Thank you for joining us on our Saturday afternoon. If you're listening to us live here in Los Angeles, it's 12 on a rainy day. If you want to call us, we're at 877-474-3302. You can reach us on Twitter at Mark, M-A-R-C, and Marsha, M-A-R-S-H-A, uh, on Twitter or at Gmail or Marsha Collier at Twitter. Hashmark Tech Radio, all your tweets, please. And hello, Marsha. How are you? How you doing, Mark? It's going to be a busy day. we got a lot of good guests coming yeah, up. Yeah, a lot of good stuff, a lot to talk about. Uh, so why don't we, let's get to the first guest right away. Uh, you know, I think you and I both started a 100 years ago playing video games. You know, even before it was fashionable for someone over the age of 12 to play a video game. And I have been involved, you know, with my kids when they were little, with Atari and Coleco and, and, and such and so on and so forth. Activision. And Activision, and you know, pretty much everything you could possibly do. And uh, our guest created and wrote a book, which is just a beautiful book called The Art of Video Games. And now he is the curator at the Smithsonian for the special Art of Video Games ex, uh, exhibition that's there. And let me, first of all, get him on the show and tell you who he is. Chris Mil- Melissanos, I hope, Chris, I did that right. He's the former chief gaming officer and chief evangelist for Sun Microsystems and founder of Past Pix- Pixels and also the curator for the Art of Video Games exhibition that's going to run uh, from March to September of this year at the Smithsonian. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the program. Our pleasures. Is it uh, Melissanos? Did I do that even remotely correctly? Well, you know, if we were in Greece, then Melissanos works. Melissinos, uh, Melissanos, Chris. Melissinos. Any of them works. Just <laughs> All right. Well, I guess so. I, I was speaking to our Greek audience because we are we we are big in Greece. So, oh, uh, welcome to the show. You know, it's funny. I Chris and I spoke last week, and I was telling him that I had a chance a number of years ago to have Nolan Bushnell in studio with me. You know, who I have always kind of thought is the father of video games, and you t- you have a whole chapter about uh, Nolan in here. How did you get started in video games? Well, you know, I was, um, you know, I was of the generation that I lovingly referred to as the bit baby generation, right? So we were the first kids that grew up in the 1970s with video games and computers that we appropriated, you know, into our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being born in 1970, I remember when Pong, you know, as a little kid first came into the house and then the Atari VCS. And uh, I never stopped playing. You know, I started writing games when I was nine. I wrote my first full computer game uh, at the age of 12. Wow. Uh, in the mid-90s, I used to run forums for AOL, for Sega and Atari. And eventually, you know, it, through playing games, collecting games, programming games, I eventually was able to turn it into a career. And so I became the chief gaming officer at Sun Microsystems and worked on everything from client-side technologies for your mobile phones and browsers to server technologies that power you know, very large, massive multiplayer games. So video games have been present pretty much in my life for my entire life. You know, I'm trying to remember back, because when I think of Sun Micro, I don't really think back to games. So what was their involvement at the time in the gaming industry? Well, you know, it wasn't directly involved in creating games, something that we never did. But with platforms like Java Technology, which sat Uh. in or sits in billions of devices around the world, set-top boxes, mobile phones, browsers, desktop servers. This is where we were applying technologies that would make it uh, an excellent platform for game developers by providing high-performance technologies in Java so they could write the game once, run it on multiple platforms. 
And so my road into the video games industry was actually helping to provide tools and platforms that game developers could use to make the games that people love to play. You know, I look back, and I, Marcia, I'm, I'm sure you do too, and I think about the early video games. I remember when my son was maybe 13, 14 years old, and I said to him, you know, one day you're going to be playing not with these stick figures, but you're going to be playing with characters that look like real people. And, you know, we uh-huh. certainly, have, uh, you know, certainly have evolved to that these days. I mean, sometimes you can't tell a video game from a movie. And in fact, Marcia, I know a lot of the movies you see to the, the, uh, CG movies, you sometimes can't even tell that they're not actually actors in that. Uh, so, you know, I certainly we have evolved from that. Before I get, though, into the, the actual video game discussion itself, Chris, tell us about this great exhibition at the Smithsonian. So um, the video game, the exhibition is known as the Art of Video Games, and it's at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. They opened on March 16th of this month, and uh, or this year, rather, and will run through September 30th of this year. And basically, this is the an opportunity for us to look at video games as an artistic medium, not just to admire and um, understand the art within video games, but really to look at video games on the whole as an artistic platform. And so this is one of the first exhibitions, if not the first, that really have examined video game art in this manner. And it certainly um, and so is an it's, art. It's a wonderful exhibition. Uh, I, I was at the Smithsonian for the first time in many years uh, last year, and it's just a wonderful uh, facility. I mean, you have to spend days there going through it. But uh, but this is kind of cool because this kind of comes around and says, gee, all those years I wasted with quarters and, and video games in front of a TV, uh, I guess became really pop culture and part of the uh, the icon of the world. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting. You know, we looked back at video games versus any other form of artistic expression. Um, you know, video games have had this kind of hyper-evolution uh, in the past 40 years, where, you know, as you were mentioning, the, the very first games you play were these very rudimentary sorts of games, um, very abstract in a lot of ways, right? So when we look at things on the screen and we see a square block with an arrow, we're supposed to kind of imbue that square block and the arrow with our imagination to turn it into a warrior fighting a fierce battle. You know, um, we've moved very quickly in a very short uh, period of time from very abstract notions of character, story, placement, and composition to fully articulated worlds, worlds where it's hard sometimes to tell, you know, that it is actually fiction, that it's not real, uh, you know, what it is that you're observing. Um, And so when we take a look at, uh, you know, how we describe video games as art, I think that, for, by and large, for most of us that grew up with video games, that grew up programming them and kind of immersed ourselves in them, we always knew that there was something bigger to video games than we could articulate. And I think really what it was was a lack of maturity with regard to vocabulary. We, we didn't have the maturity to describe accurately what we believed to be art. And it's only in reflection on those previous 40 years from this point, that we're able to actually say, now we understand. Now we have the vernacular, the mechanical language in which to go ahead and describe what it is we were trying to say, you know, in those previous few years. So I think, you know, the exhibition happening now couldn't have happened at any other point in time because we just lacked the maturity of vocabulary and hindsight to really describe what it is that we were engaged in, and that is storytelling and creation and art. Marcia, when you're you talking a about a Smithsonian exhibit, how do they mm-hmm. do this? Do they have all the games lined up? How does it work? <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting, right? Because video games are an interactive medium, one would expect everything to be interactive. However, keeping, you know, uh, some semblance of order inside of an art museum, uh, we had and we, quiet. We couldn't do that. Right? <laughs> we couldn't have a hundred or so games on display uh, constantly, uh, you know, allowing people to interact with them. What we did is we broke down the exhibition to follow a specific narrative. Um, basically, actually, it's three components of narrative. Um, the first part of the exhibition, when you enter, actually talks about the, the artistry behind the games. You get to actually hear from the developers and the designers and the artists. And they talk about what inspires them, where they draw you know, inspiration in the world from, what uh, is their philosophy about making games, why do they feel that it's important, why did they choose this medium in which to craft their stories versus any other form of expressive media? And what is their hope for the future of video games? And so here we really get to understand the humanity and the people behind the games that we play in society. The second part of the exhibition um, presents five playable games. So there are some playable games available to the public. And well, what I did was is I selected a game for each of the five eras that we describe in this exhibition. And each one of these games did something different that changed the way game developers looked at their craft, that changed the way society viewed video games, um, and their importance. So the games that are on display are Pac-Man, Super Mario Brothers, The Secret of Monkey Island, Mist, yeah. and Flower. No Zelda? Marshall's well, a Nintendo when go, chick. When you go into the third room, which okay. chronicles the art progression of 40 years, starting at the Atari VCS, and we hit the Nintendo Entertainment System, and Zelda is in there, and the Super NES, and the GameCube, and Nintendo 64, and the Wii. You know, Zelda and Mario are well represented on those platforms. But here what you get to see is um, a beautiful... Uh, you know, screenshot of the gameplay in action that is accompanied by 60 to 90 seconds of annotated video that is trying to describe what it is the designer was trying to convey through this game. How do you we know, peel back that veneer of the game and let people understand the intent of the author or designer? And I have to say, you know, I want to talk a little bit, Chris, when we come back, I want to talk some more video games. But uh, the book, which is uh, Chris's, I guess, co-author of this book called uh, The Art of Video Games from Pac-Man to Mass Effect. And one, it's just a it's just a beautiful book, uh, great pictures and, you know, designs and such. And I look back, the first game you have in here is Combat, which came out in 1977. And then you talk about how the games came about, which is terrific. And I look back and I, you know, I seem to, I guess I have a fonder memory of what the games look like or I'm just so jaded by the graphics of today that I go, really? That's what I used to play? You know, a couple mm -hmm. of sticks and a couple of lines and a couple of uh, things shooting across. So I want to talk about the evolution of, you know, how do we get from, uh, you know, the X's and O's that look like that to the X's and O's that look like, or ones and O's, to, to the, where we are today and the uh, the way that they have changed and made them so beautifully graphic. And you you cover how many games in here? In your we book? cover 80 games, which are the principal evolutionary uh, component of the exhibition. So that book mirrors the third, uh, the third area of the exhibition. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about more about Chris's book, the exhibition, and video gaming, and maybe yeah, we're I got going a bunch of questions here. Yeah, maybe we're going in the future, and hopefully, I won't butcher your name, Chris, but I'm likely to. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Don't go away. This is Marsha Collier. I'm here with Mark Cohen, and we're on WS Radio the worldwide leader in Internet talk.
You are listening to Computer and Technology Radio with your hosts, Mark Cohen and Marsha Collier. Love to read but just don't have the time? With Audible.com, you can catch up on reading simply by listening. Audible has the largest collection of digital audiobooks, over 85,000 titles in every genre. Listen to a bestseller on your iPhone, BlackBerry, Android smartphone, or one of 500 other compatible devices. Visit audible.com slash wsradio today and get a free audiobook when you try Audible free for 14 days. That's audible.com slash wsradio. Thank you for listening to WS Radio. If you are not listening on your smartphone, we have just made it a lot easier with our new WS Radio 2.0 iPhone, BlackBerry, and Android apps. Just search for WS Radio in the iPhone store, BlackBerry, and Android market. They are all free downloads so you can listen live or on demand to your favorite show. For more information, log on to wsradio.com forward slash mobile. That is wsradio.com forward slash mobile. You know, selling online can be a challenge, but thanks to Dymo Indicia, shipping isn't. With Dymo Indicia, you can print prepaid U.S. Postal Service shipping labels directly from your Mac or PC. By eliminating your trip to the post office, Dymo Indicia lets you focus on finding, listing, and selling your products. My friends can save hundreds of dollars on a Dymo Indicia postage solution by visiting endicia.com slash cool eBay tools. Dymo Indicia is the leading internet postage provider with over $5 billion of postage printed. Indicia is integrated into over 100 third-party applications, which makes your inventory management easy. You get access to discounted delivery and signature confirmation, discounted parcel insurance, and hidden stealth postage. Shipping internationally? With Dymo Indicia, you can also print a first-class international shipping label. Dymo Indicia is the smart way to get it done. Visit endicia.com slash cool eBay tools. For the past decade, I've been recommending Kingston for all your drive and memory need. And each year, they never fail to impress me. If you've never used an SSD before, the V-Series might just be the ticket. Let's say you've had that computer for a few years and it's starting to run a little slow. If you're not ready to replace it, Kingston's SSD, now V-Series, solid-state drive can kickstart that old system and make it feel like new. It will improve performance as boot and shutdown times are reduced and programs open and close faster. In general, the system is snappier. It's like breathing new life into an existing system. If you own a desktop, the 30-gig Kingston V-Series SSD is the perfect companion to that hard drive you have with all that music and movie. Put the operating system on the SSD and keep the data where it's at. Sit back and watch your old desktop operate faster. There's a capacity and a model for everyone wanting to upgrade from a traditional hard drive to a solid-state drive. Check out the Kingston SSD Now V-Series. SSD at www.kingston.com. Talk, talk to me. WSRadio.com Welcome back to Computer and Technology Radio with your hosts, Mark Cohen and Marsha Collier. And welcome back, 877-474-3302. Chris, you pronounce your last name for me so I don't butcher it. No problem. It's Melisinos. 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 Okay. okay, we got that now. Okay, where's the C in your name? I'm trying. <laughs> I know it's M E L I S S I N O S. Melisinos. Melisinos. Okay. And uh, we'll put a link to the book up in the show notes so people can go buy it at Amazon because I'll bet you it's a beautiful book. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's a, Chris. It's about forty nine ninety five. Did I do that right? Oh, well, actually, uh, it's forty. I believe it's forty dollars, but I think it's. Uh, 
quite a bit of a discount actually on Amazon right now. So. Oh, great. Okay. I mean, if you remember gaming fondly as I do, and I know Marcia does, uh, then you will love seeing all the different things in here. Uh, the first question I want to ask, Marcia is the eBay expert of the universe, and so she's very familiar with selling stuff. And I, I know if I go out to my garage, I'm pretty sure I have an Atari 400 computer sitting in there, a ColecoVision system, an original Atari. Are those things worth anything other than nostalgia? Uh, well, you know, I mean, you, you would probably need to go ahead and check. I mean, the, the thing is that uh, there are some pieces of gaming history, computer history, that certainly are worth uh, more to collectors um, based on when they were manufactured or, you know, who was involved in, in creating the product or the the, uh, the hardware or the, the software. So it depends. I think I would probably defer to Marsha. If she's the eBay expert, I would probably <laughs> yeah. uh, have her go out there and help you figure out exactly what that would be worth. Well, Marcia, actually, you actually look, you- yeah. Actually, you can do a lot, a lot, make a lot of money in vintage video games because a lot of people do have the old systems. Mm-hmm. And selling the games individually, you can actually do quite well. It's really rare to see some of those um, online. You know, people obviously don't sell them that often. Uh, it, all I'm seeing pretty much is catalogs and stuff like that online. I know... Um, I've tried to get the first the Altair. I was trying oh. to get an Altair piece by piece on eBay, and it was just running too much. You can get it a lot cheaper, if, like an Altair, if you want to piece by piece it. But you can't really do that with a, you know, a Atari or a Commodore. They can't. You know, you have to get it all in one piece. Yeah. But here, yeah, exactly. an Atari, an Atari 400 computer with joystick. An Atari 1010 program recorder and Atari Basic is in auction now on eBay, closing in a day, and it's $33.58. Oh, my gosh. Right. Okay, okay well, all right. Well, then, so, so here, so I'll give you a quick pro tip. On, oh, wait a minute. On, here's one okay. Here's one that sold with seven games for $350. Okay. So there you go. Okay. There so you go. So you, so you're talking about going ahead and buying the, those systems. You're right. I mean, those completely integrated or complete consoles, which are basically, you know, computers that are um, that are created to allow for ease of software, um, you know, switching software out and ease of connection. Here's a great uh, example of you know how variance in the uh, technology platform these platforms can change in value. So, if you, if any of the listeners have access to their original Atari VCS, which is also known as the Atari 2600, right. and if it has six switches on the front, what you want to do is look on the bottom and make sure that it was manufactured in Sunnyvale, California. If it was manufactured in Sunnyvale, it's known in the collecting community as a heavy sixer. This was the only production run of that platform that was actually done in Sunnyvale before it moved overseas. And the reason it's called the Heavy Sixer is because they put all this extra shielding inside of it to pass the FCC uh, RF requirements. So so if you go online and just look up a regular old Atari 2600, it would probably run you about $30. If you find a Heavy Sixer, it's going to be somewhere between mm, $700 and $1,000. Wow. Right. So even in, you know, those closed fixed systems, there are variances that actually increase uh, in the collector community. It's just you have to kind of research this and understand the history of it to kind of find out what the best, uh, you know, uh, best people uh, are. All I know, all I know is I have three K-Pro 2s and oh. two of them are for parts. 
and it up and runs, and I just don't know when the five-inch disc <laughs> is going <laughs> to die on me. But I, I've got it, and it's so much fun to boot it up with that little green phosphorescent screen, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, well, you know, listen. You, you, you've actually hit a, an interesting point, too, about preservation of games. Um, you said you have three of those K-Pros, two of which are just used for parts. Well, the actually, they all function. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, right. So, two, just in case, you'll always at least have one, right? At least mm -hmm, all three systems mm -hmm. of parts together will always at least create one. This is the problem that we have actually in the preservation of games, which is something that uh, game developers and development communities are starting to address, which is the difference between collecting something like film or paintings is that there are restoration techniques that are not... Uh, that do not rely upon the broadcast uh, equipment to go ahead and maintain. You can actually repair film using a variety of different techniques, the same thing with painting. Um, and you can display those through a variety of different mediums and still stay true to their original intent. Video games are different in that they are truly the marriage between art and technology. And as such, it requires that original technology in order to broadcast it correctly or broadcast it in its original intended form. <laughs> right. And so what we have to do is start preserving these individual Rosetta Stones, if you will, of each one of these errors to make sure that for future generations we're able to actually accurately display, accurately convey the intent of the designer of those games. So it becomes a problem not only preserving the medium, but also preserving the platforms in which the medium operates. Now, you know, it's, a, uh, it's interesting. In, in reading about some of the video games you wrote about, and, and I would say I'm looking at Space Invaders, which came in the 80s, and to me today that game actually still kind of holds up, even though it was so uh, uh, elementary compared to what we have today. But one of the things I found fascinating, Marsha, you'll, you'll find this interesting. In 1981, Namco came out with Pac-Man, and I was always under this impression that it was a roaring success when it came out. Apparently it wasn't, was it? Well, the game actually, the arcade game was a success. The home version, and this is one of the problems when we try to go ahead and translate experiences um, to other t platform other platforms where the technology is not capable of meeting that intent. So the original arcade game of, of Pac-Man was a, a roaring success, and it was because it stood as an anomaly to everything else that was in the world at the time. If you went into arcades during that era, you would have seen a lot of space-shooting games, mm -hmm. space-themed games, alien-themed games. And all of a sudden, here comes this very candy-colored maze-chasing game with these really cute ghosts and this really cute mechanics that had these little, um, this little storyline that would play out in between the levels. And it, it appealed to both men and women. And so it did something very different in society in game development. In fact, we had Pac-Man Fever. Remember the song Pac-Man sure. Fever? Oh, that yeah, was very big sure. in the early 80s, and there were serials and cartoons and everything else. We were trying to articulate what was important. But in trying to move it to the home platform, in a very short period of time, the developer Todd Fry uh, was forced with making tremendous compromises to make sure, number one, it fit on the very anemic Atari VCS. Mm -hmm. Number two, fit into a fraction of the memory space that the arcade version did, but retained all of the core gameplay mechanics. So it was a very noble and valiant attempt. And if you actually read, there's a wonderful book called Racing the Beam by Ian Bogust, which talks about the the very subtle art of programming on the VCS, uh, which is very much like, as another designer, Ed Fries claims, it's like writing haiku, right? You have to be very meaningful and intentful with each character that you use in your coding. Um, 
when you take a look back now, you realize what an incredible te- you know, technological feat this was. But it failed in the public's mind because it didn't match the arcade experience that they were expecting. And so it really forces the, the view of what happens when you put technological constraints um, on a designer, and it's met with you know, an inappropriate expectation by those who would observe the work. Hmm. Now, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to throw in, um, I, I have a great fond memory of ColecoVision. To me, that when that system came out, I went, wow, graphics are really getting exciting. And uh, mm-hmm. Zax, Zaxxon, I think it was called, and... Yeah. Uh, that was, I mean, I remember vividly playing that game going, this is so cool. Uh, and, and then, uh, Pitfall, which was what, to me, one of the most adventure, the first adventure game that I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, these were games that were just, you know, huge breakthroughs during their era. So if, you know, you're the right guy to ask this question to, and maybe it's not a fair question, your favorite video game of all time? Oh, it's an easy answer. Um, if I'm talking about arcade games, it's Robotron 2084. Yeah. It, wow. <laughs> right? The little esoteric much? <laughs> this yeah. is a game. No, no, actually, this was pretty popular during its era. It was created by the same gentleman who created Defender. Do you remember Defender? Oh, absolutely, sure. Right? And this game, Robotron 2084, is one of the most perfectly balanced game uh, games to this day. To this day, the gameplay completely holds up. You can fire that game up today and wow. enjoy it just as much as you did back then. The graphics hold up very well over time, but the, the core mechanics of how the game communicates to you what to do inside of the gameplay framework is just, it's sublime. It's absolutely Chris, a wonderful game. Chris, we're almost out of time, and in tribute to you, I wanted to let you know to go to Google Maps for April Fools. They have converted <laughs> Google Maps to 8-bit format. For yeah. April yeah. Fools. It is amazing. You have to see that. And all our listeners, check it out if you're listening live because it's going to be fabulous. And Chris, tell oh, us yeah. again, it's is there a website, because we are only have 30 seconds, is there a website for us to check you out in the exhibition? Well, if you go to uh, AmericanArt.si.edu, you can make your way over to the Art of Video Games page. And in there, you'll be able to see the videos from the exhibition online, additional materials that were not included in the exhibition, um, the panel sessions that we ran during our opening event called Game Fest. You're able to experience all of those as well. And you can also follow me on Twitter uh, at cmelicinos. Or you can check out my website at www.pastpixels.com. Uh, hey, Chris, thank you so much. Great thank stuff. You so Thanks much. for being with us. Take care. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh, that's thank fabulous. you. Thank you. Okay, we'll be right back. This is Marsha Collier, and I'm here with Mark Cohen on WS Radio, the worldwide leader in Internet You are listening talk. to Computer and Technology Radio with your hosts, Mark Cohen and Marsha Collier. Are your salespeople running at the speed of the Internet? Are you providing the tools they need to compete? Bjorn Stansvik from MentorMate has a solution for increasing the effectiveness of your workforce. The most common problem we see our clients facing is that their salespeople don't have time for learning. IQPAC provides an adaptable mobile learning solution to help your sales force easily master the knowledge to compete effectively. Go to IQPAC.com. That's IQPAKK.com to learn more. 
Attention online sellers. Introducing a great source for high-quality, low-cost merchandise. Genco Marketplace is America's largest wholesale source of store returns and closeout inventory. Our huge volume and variety of products means online sellers can be insured of a steady source of supply. Find electronics, housewares, shoes, apparel, tools, and general merchandise all from one site. Discover the web's one-stop product source you can trust. Pallets for sale are posted to our easy-to-use e-commerce site, GencoMarketplace.com. There you'll find what you need fast and view a detailed list of items in the pallets. No surprises. Genco Marketplace has direct liquidation contracts with America's largest retailers and manufacturers, which means that buyers purchase direct from the source with no middleman markups. Huge variety, low risk, and fast, easy online purchasing. Register for free and begin bidding on loads the same day. Sign up today at GencoMarketplace.com. That's G-E-N-C-O Marketplace.com. We all need to work on a healthier lifestyle. The stresses of the day take their toll. And if we lack a healthy plan and activities, it's even harder to be fit. To make it easier for you to maintain a healthy lifestyle and reach fitness goals, Better Bodies by Chemistry and the Gina Aliotti Fitness Network have joined together to work for you. Better Bodies by Chemistry is here to provide vitamins and supplements to support and improve your health at a great value. And Gina Aliotti's Fitness Network provides the tools and a fitness environment where women can inspire each other to reach goals. With their help, you can achieve a healthy lifestyle that is realistic, no matter what your life encompasses. Joining the Gina Aliotti Fitness Network assures that you will never be alone in your fitness journey. And with Better Bodies by Chemistry's products, you are assured of the finest quality at a great price. Learn more at GinaAliotti.com and BetterBodiesByChemistry.com. That's GinaAliotti.com and BetterBodiesByChemistry.com. Are you an adventurous wine drinker? Would you enjoy trying a bold red with dark fruit and a spicy finish from Hungary? Or an amphora-style Chibi Pinot with layers of complex flavors? Carpathian Wines hand-selects extraordinary wines from premier Central European wineries. At CarpathianWines.com, you'll find amazing dry whites, big juicy reds, even the famous Tokaya Azu. Discover award-winning limited production wines from the heart of Central Europe. Find them only at CarpathianWines.com. 